Tonight, as uh, as Luke and Andrew said before, is uh, part of a little series, a little three-week series on difficult questions, uh, questions that go to the heart of what uh, Christians believe, um, whether there are reasons, good reasons that we have for believing these things, and whether it's right for us to frame our lives around them the way we do. Uh, they are, as, as Luke rightly said, uh, not easy questions, the questions that we as Christians grapple with. Uh, and questions that you, if you're inquiring into the Christian faith, may find yourself grappling with as well. So the whole series tonight included really has a kind of double purpose and a double audience in mind. In the first place, this is a series, these three weeks, intended for those of us who are here tonight already as believers in Jesus, as Christian people, uh, with the aim of challenging us to scrutinize the things that we say we believe, uh, to think about the questions uh, that we might already have or the questions that people we know and love might put to us about the things we believe and the reasons we believe them uh, and to think about, to begin the process at least of thinking about how we might go about answering those questions. But also in the second place, it's a series intentionally that we hope will be useful for those of us here tonight who are not yet Christians uh, uh, but are investigating the Christian faith, making serious kind of inquiries into what it is to believe what Christians believe and to live the life that Christians live. Um, we're hoping that this will be a way of opening up conversation and uh, stimulating thought about these some of these issues. Uh, and hopefully that it will be part of a journey toward decision about uh, the person of Jesus and the claims that he makes on our lives. If that's you, then I hope you feel uh, very much welcome tonight. I hope that the talks across these three weeks, uh, that each of them will have something which touches on uh, issues that matter to you, uh, that you've been giving some thought to. Uh, and I'm hoping you'll get to ask some questions uh, in the discussion time, the Q&A later tonight. Uh, the talk is a short one. It's probably more like 20, 25 minutes than the full 30, I reckon. So there should be plenty of time uh, for questions that you text through. And so to the theme of tonight, the second of those questions in the series, is there really, as Christians claim, uh, a heaven and a hell? It was John Lennon, wasn't it, back in 1971, who perhaps most famously in our times or the times that those of us who are a little older in the room can remember, uh, most famously asked the question of his sort. Well, he didn't just ask the question, did he? He encouraged us to, invited us to imagine a world in which the answer to that question was no. Now imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people Living, you're glad I'm not singing this at this point. <laughs> I thought about it <laughs> for about that long. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one, etc., etc., etc. He wasn't, of course, the first person to imagine a universe of that sort. Uh, Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, uh, thought a similar set of ideas 23 centuries earlier, um, as did Democritus before him. And plenty of others across the centuries since then have followed in a similar kind of path, imagining a world in which nothing except what you can perceive with your senses, nothing except what you can smell or hear or see or touch or logically infer from the things that you smell and hear and see and touch can be counted as real. 
Uh, there are some questions to be asked about that vision that John Lennon proposes, of course. Is it really plausible? Is it really plausible to suppose that this world that we see has simply just existed forever of its own accord? Or that it bursts spontaneously into existence out of sheer nothing without a creator or a designer to imagine it or to purpose it in the first place? And has it, has it really been the case that people who imagine the world that way, uh, people who live on the basis that there's no heaven and no hell and no judgment day to come, no day of accounting, uh, no God who sees and cares about our lives and what we do in them, people who live, as the song says, simply for today, are going to choose to live their lives as a kind of universal brotherhood and sisterhood, sharing all the world, sharing all their possessions, living life in peace. It sounds lovely. Is imagining the world that way going to create a world in which we live like that? When people have tried to construct a society based on strictly materialist principles, um, I'm thinking of people like Lenin, not the John Lennon, but the original Lenin, uh, Stalin, uh, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong. How did that work out for the people who lived in the societies that they created? And even if you put aside, um, out of the question, those kind of coercive, authoritarian versions of that vision, if you just stay within the sort of liberal democratic capitalist world that we're f familiar with. How do you stop, if you're living in John Lennon's imagined world, how do you stop what seems to be the inevitable kind of gravitational slide down from the philosophical materialism that John Lennon advocated to the kind of consumerist materialism that Madonna sang about? If all the people are living for today um, in a material world as material boys and girls, they're not necessarily going to be living with each other's welfare in mind. There's a reason, you might argue, why the 80s, with their greed and consumerism, came after the 70s with all their efforts to unravel and liberate the individual from the constraints of community and tradition. There are questions worth asking, I think, about the rationality and about the livability of the vision that John Lennon asked us to imagine. Nice song. I'm not sure I do want to live in that world. Even Immanuel Kant uh, the great philosopher of the 18th century German Enlightenment, champion of sceptical reason, no friend at all to traditional Christianity. Even Immanuel Kant was convinced when he thought it all over and tried to get it all within the bounds of pure reason. Even Immanuel Kant was convinced that categorical materialism was an unlivable philosophy. Even if, as he argued, we can't have direct experiential knowledge of realities like God or heaven and the soul 
And I think he's basically right about that. You can't see God. Even if he's right about that, the belief that human beings are not just matter, but possesses in some mysterious way of a personhood uh, that outlives this mortal existence in our human bodies, and the belief that the world we live in is not just the product of random energy and chance and time, but the creation of a God who, who built into it not only laws of physics, but also a kind of moral architecture. Beliefs of that sort are, as Immanuel Kant put it, the necessary postulates of practical reason and moral agency. In other words, he was saying, if we're going to live these, this life as human beings, as rational, responsible people who think and choose in moral categories with consequence to them and who thinks that think that there's such a thing as responsibility and choice and significance in our lives, then he says we have to at least postulate to imagine, if you will, something more than just the visible material realities of flesh and bones, atoms and molecules. I think he's right. Don't agree on everything with Immanuel Kant, but I think on that basic, that basic stance, I think he's right. So there are questions to be asked, it seems to me, about the vision that John Lennon sang for us and the way in which he asked us to live in light of it. But my purpose tonight is not really to interrogate a song from the 1970s, uh, even if it was quite an influential song in its day. My purpose is instead to focus two millennia earlier, uh, to focus on the words and claims of Jesus uh, on which those of us who are Christians have based our lives, to focus on the words and claims of Jesus and ask a similar set of questions about what he had to say and about what Christians believe based on that. The passage, tiny little excerpt, a little paragraph from the Bible, from the book of uh, from the book of John in the New Testament. It comes from the Gospel of John, one of the four first century biographies of Jesus that we call the Gospels, that are the first books of the New Testament in the Bible. Um, I want to focus on a little passage, a conversation, a paragraph that comes uh, starting with the, the last few words of a conversation between uh, Jesus and a man called Nicodemus, a religious leader, uh, a thought leader and re- community leader and a religious figure of his day. And then it continues, uh, according to most of the, the commentaries and translations, it continues with the reflections, the conclusions that the writer of this biography of Jesus, the Gospel of John, uh, makes uh, based on the words that Jesus has said. It reads like this, John chapter 3, and we'll have it on the screen, verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, uh, the Son of Man. That's the way that Jesus refers to himself. Um, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, this is an event from the ancient history of the people of Israel, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's the way he talks about his crucifixion, uh, being nailed to a cross and lifted up in death, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who hates Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The opening line of the passage, uh, those last words of Jesus in his conversation recorded here in the gospel, uh, the opening line begins with, an assertion that's every bit as blunt as one of those statements of the skeptics and the Epicureans, uh, the philosophers of the ancient world. No one, Jesus reminds Nicodemus, no one has ever gone into heaven. The prologue to John's gospel, the first chapter of this same book, concludes with a similar statement. No one has ever seen God. Now we can theorize, we can speculate, we can postulate, as Kant says, and I think there are good reasons why we would. But if God is by nature invisible, if God is, as Christians claim, not just a powerful force or figure within the cosmos, within the creation, but the maker of all that exists, if heaven is, by by definition, outside of this visible creation, not part of the world that we inhabit, then of course we haven't been to heaven. And of course we haven't seen God. You see, believing in God the way that Jesus describes it um, is not like, if you know the play, Waiting for Godot, it's not like Estragon believing in Godot. It's more like Hamlet believing in Shakespeare. God, you see, in Christian understanding, God is not a character within the play who never shows up, Now, he's the playwright because of whom the whole story exists in the first place. And in a similar kind of way, believing in heaven, as Christians understand it, believing in heaven doesn't mean believing in a a distant place within this universe, somewhere up in the sky that you can reach if you travel far enough, where the sky fairies live, in a little room hidden away behind a star somewhere. When Nikita Khrushchev boasted to his fellow members of the, famously boasted to his fellow members of the Communist Party Central Committee that Yuri Gagarin, the cosmonaut, had flown into space and he didn't see God, he was hardly offering a devastating rebuttal of Christian faith. We never said that heaven was kind of up there between the moon and the sun or something. Christians have always believed that God is the creator of the universe not an inhabitant of some distant corner within it. And Jesus' words here in John 3 are entirely consistent with that. God and heaven and hell for that matter too are not simply the objects of human empirical knowledge and discovery. We don't believe in heaven and hell because some kid said that he had a near-death experience and went there. You can sell a few books, but it's not going to convince. It's not the reason that Christians believe in heaven. 
because they think we found it by traveling and looking for it up there somewhere. But that doesn't mean that God is somehow trapped in his own unknowability, up there in heaven all alone, stuck up there. The claim at the center of the Christian faith is not that we have discovered God by searching, that some clever Christians found heaven and looked there, that God was there, and then we went, we looked down and found hell. No, the claim of the Christian faith, at the center of the Christian faith, is not that we have discovered God, that one of us has been to heaven and come back with the answers. The claim at the center of Christianity is that God has reached out to us and has entered our existence, has come into our world and has made himself known that he's reached out to make himself known to us. John 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the father has made him known. Or in our passage, our little paragraph, um, our first verse, John 3 verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man, Jesus. You see, as a Christian, I believe in heaven for the same reason as I believe in God, and that is because of Jesus. I believe in heaven for the same reason I believe in God, because of Jesus and because of the whole series of God's acts of self-revelation, God making himself known, that climax and come together in the life of Jesus. It is in Jesus, as Jesus himself puts it to one of an, another of his disciples, Nathaniel, in John chapter 1, in Jesus that we see heaven opened, the invisible made visible, uh, the mind of God become flesh, uh, the angels of God's uh, heaven, God's self-revelation, ascending and descending on the kind of the ladder of the man Jesus, connecting earth and heaven, giving us a way to know God within our world. All of this, of course, is magnificently good news if it is true. If the invisible God, if the God who authored us, imagined us, designed us, created us, has reached out into our world, his creation, to inhabit it, to live within it, and to make himself known to us. If light has shone into our darkness, if God has made a way for us to be his daughter's and his sons, then that is, I would say, about the best news you could ever hear. Especially if the God we come to know through the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is a God of grace and goodness and kindness and love. If the God who made the world so loves his creation and, and us within it that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If Jesus really did the things he did and said the things that he said and claimed the things that he claimed and if he really was vindicated by the creator of the universe, by God, uh, through resurrection from the dead as the disciples of Jesus um, unanimously testified and claimed, then the God who made us is a God who loves us 
and who wants us to love and to know him. And the God whom we feel compelled to postulate with Kant as the architect of good and evil is not only a just judge, but also a compassionate father who forgives our sins, our wrongdoings at his own expense and who reaches out to us, coming into our world not to cast us away in condemnation, but to draw us into his light. You see, the coming of Jesus is, right at its very heart, Christians claim, an event of grace and kindness. Um, the book of John, John's Gospel again, says in the first chapter, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's a it's very hard an event of grace and kindness. It is, of course, at the same time, in a paradoxical sense, also an, an event of judgment. Um, Jesus, again, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You see, Jesus, according to the, the New Testament writings, Jesus doesn't come into a neutral world with the aim of creating a problem for people who would otherwise have been just fine. He comes into a dark world. He comes into a world that is already shot through with cruelty and prejudice and greed and apathy and self-centeredness. He comes into a world that is already under judgment and deservedly so. And he's repeatedly, bluntly, urgently, passionately, honest about that. He doesn't give us the option of believing in a heaven but not a hell. No one in the Bible has more to say, in fact, about hell than Jesus himself. The hell that he speaks about is not some sort of uh, lurid medieval nightmare fantasy. Uh, it's the kind of hell that exists because an upright and good and just and holy God cannot be other than cannot be other than condemning of evil and injustice. It is a measured, uh, merited, proportionate, just hell that Jesus speaks about. It is the darkness, as Jesus puts it in these verses, the darkness that people love and end up being consumed by. turning away from the light because they choose the darkness over it. Forget about the pitchforks um, and the devil suits and the tails and so on. Uh, but that doesn't make it less real or his words about it less serious. Believing in Jesus, believing in heaven and believing in hell 
or at least believing in the Christian versions of heaven and hell, come bundled together in a single package. You can't really have any one of them and not have the others. Which all means that you and I, you and I and all of us, have a choice to make. A decision about heaven and hell that is at its heart a decision about Jesus. You see, according to the New Testament, the line that matters is not so much the line between belief and unbelief, it's the line between belief and unbelief in Jesus. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. For those of us who already claim to be believers in Jesus, I guess the challenge for us tonight is to keep living that claim. To keep living that way, to keep bending our lives, as Jesus puts it, into the light, not away from it. To keep saying with our deeds as well as our words that we are choosing light rather than darkness, that we are living in the sight of God and not as runaways wanting to hide from him. All too often, I suspect, all too often, even those of us who profess to be Christian believers uh, lapse into living our lives As if this world today, the things that we can see and touch and purchase and own were all that mattered to us. But the Bible leaves us no room for that. To say yes to Jesus is to say yes to the light and is to move out of the darkness and is to live in this world on the basis of the not yet seen realities of the next. That's the challenge for us who call ourselves Christians and are here tonight to be real about the claims that we say that we believe in. For those of us who are not yet Christians, who are on the journey of decision, then I want to say that the challenge of tonight is essentially, at its heart, a challenge about Jesus. You see, the question to go home with is not so much the question about heaven and hell, momentous as those issues are, but the question about the Jesus who speaks about those things. Um, The question is, what do you make of Jesus? How familiar are you with the life that he lived and the claims that he made? Um, How are you going to go about the process of making up your mind about him? Those are the questions, according to Jesus at least, those are the questions on which the whole matter of heaven and hell ends up hanging. That's all I want to say. Um, it's over now to um, to you guys, uh, the questions that you've been pondering, the questions you brought with you, the questions that um, you started to text through. Uh, we'll have a crack at some, answering some of those together now. All right, Dave. Well, thank you for that. Uh, we've got a question that's left over from last week that we didn't uh, we didn't we didn't give Ross the privilege of, of answering, so we thought we'd start with you, with, uh, with last week's question that we, that Ross couldn't answer, mainly because we didn't ask him. Question is this, we've talked about, um, heaven and hell. Um, what is the purpose of hell? Why does eternal suffering exist? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, two 
two kinds of language that the Bible uses in describing the, the reason why there is and needs to be a hell. Um, one is the language of justice and the other is the language of destruction. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, we'll start take the second one first. Um, hell is pictured in the Bible frequently in language that speaks about uh, an imagery that conveys the, the final irreversible destruction of evil. Um, so a lot of the imagery of hell is image of imagery of uh, an end, of extinction, of destruction, of being things being done away with. God creates a world that is a, 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 a recreated, a restored world of peace and justice and goodness and light, and he banishes from that. He excludes from that everything that's going to vandalize, destroy, subvert that peace. Uh, so part of the logic of hell is the logic of the the creation of a space that's a space of, of a, a redeemed, a restored, a purified world in which uh, people can live in harmony, in justice, in peace, in goodness. Um, and hell is described in the scriptures as the place to which everything is consigned that, that doesn't belong there. Now, it's about the overwhelming, the overcoming, the dis- defeat of evil and injustice. Uh, and then secondly, um, the language of the Bible about the necessity of hell is also the language of justice. Um, uh, Jesus and the other the, the writers of the scripture um, speak about hell as the place in which um, uh, those of us who don't embrace the forgiveness that God freely holds out um, experience the just punishment for what um, we have done to others, what the, the the evil we've inflicted, the wrong that we've done, um, the the things that we have imposed upon others. Uh, we receive what our deeds deserve is the language the scripture uses. Uh, so for both of those reasons, because God is a just God um, who sees to it that uh, the cries of victims are heard, uh, that evil doesn't go unpunished, um, the stuff that people might get away with in this life, they don't get away with forever. Uh, the justice reason is part of the necessity of hell, according to the, the logic of Christian faith and what the Bible says. And secondly, because of God's final conquest of evil and injustice, creating of a new world where those things don't exist. Uh, a second part that kind of goes into that. Um, one, the question was, is hell a justifiable punishment for an innocent disbelief in God? Uh, and the, the question refers to you know references like a fiery lake, burning sulfur, everlasting destruction. Um, they're terms used in the Bible. Um, yeah, how would we... How would you justify that from a biblical point of view as necessary? You know, fair enough to miss out on heaven, but to be in eternal fire. Yeah. Big um, one. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're starting with the big ones, aren't you? Um, <laughs> good day. Um, firstly, I mean, I, well, first thing I want to say is I, I, I feel the weight of the question too, and it keeps me awake at night sometimes. Um, it's not a question that we want to sort of play around with in theory. Um, we ought to feel the force of it. Second thing I want to say is I, I just want to probe a little bit into the premise of the question um, and say, in essence, you know, the, 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 if the premise is innocent unbelief is what's being punished, um, uh, that's a bit where I want to probe a little bit and say, uh, what do we mean by innocent Unbelief, because the Bible doesn't talk about hell as a place where honest, innocent opinion is punished. 
Uh, the Bible talks about hell as a place where wrongdoing, evil, injustice um, uh, are punished. Um, and the point where belief and unbelief come in is the decision that we make about whether we embrace the forgiveness, the, the, the life raft that's held out to us, or in unbelief, reject the, the, the amnesty, the, the opportunity of change, um, the, the salvation that's held out to us, um, and say instead, no, I'm going um, to stand on my own two feet, thank you, and I'll cop whatever punishment I deserve. Um, so, I, so hell is not strictly the punishment of unbelief, but the punishment of evil and wrongdoing, um, which unbelief is saying, um, uh, I'm going to cop. Um, third thing I want to say is about the fire. Um, uh, I want to take that seriously, but not literally. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, the Bible uses a whole series of images to talk about what is in the end a reality way beyond, thankfully, the experience any of us have had. So it takes imagery from this world um, as a way of speaking about realities that are not within this world. Um, and the fire imagery, whilst it is kind of literalised in the imagination of um, some of the medievals and so on and some, some modern kind of hell preachers, um, the, the, the hell image, the fire imagery that Jesus and others use is, is, is one of a whole series of different metaphors uh, that the Bible uses for being under the destructive judgment and punishment of God in, in, the, in the life to come. Um, darkness is another image the Bible uses. Jesus used that image in this passage. Um, exclusion, being shut out from the presence of God um, and excluded from the new creation that God makes. Um, uh, Jesus uses uh, the imagery of shame, being alone with your shame um, and your self-recrimination. Um, there's a whole series of different patterns of imagery uh, that the Bible uses, which seem to speak in overlapping ways of um, ruin and destruction on the one hand and um, exclusion, justice, judgment, punishment on the other. Um, I do want to say finally, sorry, I'm getting kind of five answers to a short no, question. It's, it's good. This is a big one. It's, it's come up a few times. I figure there's no way, there's no sort of end run around this one. We've got to, got to wrestle with this one if we're talking about heaven and hell. We can't sort of dodge the hell questions. Lastly, I want to say we ought to be careful as those of us who are Christians in taking seriously what Jesus says in his warnings about hell, we ought not to um, overstate uh, or um, turn into something kind of crude and unworthy of God's justice, uh, what is said about hell. Um, on the one hand, Jesus says very clearly all all evil is evil, all sin is sin, all wrongdoing is wrongdoing. We ought not to pretend that my sins don't count, but other people's, you know, other sinners. But the Bible doesn't say that all wrongdoing, all evil, is of equal magnitude and equal culpability. Um, Jesus, perhaps most clearly of anyone in the Bible, um, talks about the measured and just and proportionate nature of God's punishment and, and, and of hell. Um, Jesus says, to the, for example, to the, to the um, self-righteous people of the villages, Chorazin and Bethsaida, um, that he had um, spent time in and that had met the Son of God face to face, it'll be 
uh, worse for you on the day of judgment than it'll be for the notoriously wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Jesus talks about the person who knew full well uh, what God required and chose not to do it as being in a very different situation under the judgment of God from the person who knew little or nothing of what God's will was. Uh, so I think the Bible speaks about um, God's punishment being proportionate to um, uh, the, the secrets of the heart, the motives of the heart, the actions that we performed or didn't perform, the amount of knowledge we had or didn't have. Uh, so we shouldn't think of hell as some kind of grotesque, one-size-fits-all um, torture chamber into which everyone's kind of tossed um, by a God who couldn't care less about the details of their lives or the secrets of their heart. No, God searches the heart and his judgment is a just and wise and proportionate and nuanced uh, warrant of judgment. So I don't think we should caricature hell to make it kind of, it's horrible, but we don't want to kind of talk about it as if it's, as if it's worse than it is. Yeah, I was just going to pick up on that example of Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that they were a town that received burning sulfur in the Old Testament. And then the, the towns you're talking about, they said you're going to get worse. So I really appreciate this, this sentiment that we don't want to over-grotesque it, but uh, how would we justify, I guess, could you go a little further mm. in, you know, obviously Jesus didn't hold back, you know, the loving, compassionate Jesus that, you know, cared for every detail of every life did also use these images, um, I guess, to bring judgment and justice. So, yeah, I guess what I'm asking yes. is... I think I might have misfired there. Let me, let me just explain a little more carefully what I'm saying. So I wasn't saying don't think it's bad. I'm not saying, you know, plan on going there, it'll be okay. <laughs> what I am saying is though, don't... Say that. I'm saying don't imagine a God who doesn't bother distinguishing between... Pol Pot and my great auntie. Um, you know, um, Jesus talks about people being punished according to what their deeds deserve. Um, the New Testament book of Romans talks about God judging the secret motives of the heart. Um, God sees what's within. He sees what your intention was as well as what your actions were. Um, he knows the opportunities you had and didn't have, the understanding you had and didn't have, and he weighs all that. So I want to say, it's, it was the, the point about Korah's in Bethsaida, Sodom and Gomorrah, was the way that Jesus, I think, is very clear about the differing degrees of justice, of judgment, punishment that God's justice demands. Okay, we shouldn't think of it as, kind of, I could say, you know, the same experience, undifferentiated um, for everyone irrespective of how long they live, where they live, when they live, what they knew, what they didn't know, what they did, what they didn't do. That's good. I think that's one of the um, one of the hardest things that we can think through as Christians because I think we get the idea that, you know, you, someone like a, like, a, like a rapist who spends their life in the darkness, in this life, taking from others, we get that, that God's justice upon them needs to be severe and there's a natural human reaction to that where we want God's justice to be severe to that I think it's yeah that middle ground where there's people who you know the social worker who's lived a, a really good life and has tried to in many ways usher in the kingdom but doesn't have that belief that's the one where like we struggle with um 
one of the things that um, the questions that we've had is along the the lines of like uh, like what hell will be like. We've had the question of what heaven will be like as well. So you've kind of um, inferred and talked a little bit about what hell will be like. Um, John Stott's um, picture of of hell not being fire and then heaven being so much better than golden streets um, is really helpful. But in your understanding, like what will hell actually be like? What practically will it be like? Well, as I said a moment ago, thankfully, mercifully, I have no experience of it to base my answer on, um, and none of us does. So I'm cautious to speculate. What I want to do, though, is say we have this gallery of warning images that Jesus and the New Testament writers give us. Um, so uh, I want to say simultaneously in some kind of way the Bible speaks about hell as um, a place of, of suffering um, proportionate to the evil that we inflicted, it'll be visited upon our heads, um, a place of shame, of, of sitting with the reality, having been exposed of what I did wrong. Uh, the last judgment day the Bible speaks about as a day when things are laid bare and exposed. Uh, so the Bible speaks about hell as everlasting shame and contempt about sitting with that experience of having been shown for what I really was and what I really did. Um, it talks about hell as exclusion, about knowing that um, there is this other world that I shut myself out of by my decisions, um, knowing that the door was shut in my face because I had I had shut it and chosen for it to be shut in my face. I had rejected the light being left in the darkness. Um, yeah, so none of those is a pretty thought to dwell on. Um, uh, it's a, as a, All of them are, are kind of word pictures and warning pictures. Um, so that I don't think the Bible gives us, intends to say it's just like this thing. It gives us a pattern of a, a multiplicity of different um, mental pictures. The end result is to say... Um, whatever it is, it will be something that's, that's, that's just and warranted and justified. It's something that um, you'd never want to experience. And it's something for all of us that the Bible speaks of as something that's it's an avoidable reality. Second practical question. Um, in that, in The Great Divorce... Um, C.S. Lewis's book where he talks about this being, this being a, a picture that's not theology but it's a picture of what, um, you know, it's a story. In that story, there's an opportunity for those who are in the, in the Greylands to have an, a second opportunity. And one of the, two of the questions that we've got here, do you believe there is any further opportunity for those in hell to believe in Jesus and come to the light? Or does our death also signal the end of any further chance to embrace God if we haven't done so already? Um, first, three things to say. Firstly, I think it's a, it's a great book. If you've not read it, you should read it. C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Um, one of the things he does in that book, I think, is to, through the thought experiment of imagining a busload of 
tourists from hell being granted the opportunity for a kind of day trip to heaven. Um, one of the things that he does in that is through that thought experiment, sort of help us to get the to to, to feel the reality of what Jesus is saying in, this, in these verses from the Gospel of John we read tonight. That people who the people who live in hell are in a sense there by having um, chosen their nightmare. <laughs> Um, and one by one, the tourists on the bus end up hating the light and choosing back into the darkness. Um, I think there's a kind of there's a profound insight there. He kind of he kind of helps us to picture that. Um, now he he leaves the door open a crack, doesn't he, in, in that book? And imagine someone who who ends up making the other choice. Um, if that ends up being the case, I will be so thrilled and delighted. I'm not sure the Bible does leave the door open that little bit the way that the way that um, c.s lewis imagines for that one exception uh, and the bible speaks about something much more like the rule than the exception that c.s lewis imagines you know the bible says it's appointed to everyone to die and after that the judgment um, it does seem to say you make your choice um, jesus says the sun's in the sky just a few hours longer uh, walk and, and, and make your decision while the sun's still in the sky because the time's coming when sunset's coming. You know, that the, the, the window of opportunity is, is, is limited. Um, so look, I, I guess I'd say if I, if I end up um, discovering that a whole bunch of people kind of got a second chance to make, to, re, to do a redo and to make their decision again after, after they died, I'm not going to be complaining. Um, I'll be delighted. Um, I wouldn't be banking on it though and thinking, you know, well, I'll just kind of, I'll make my decision after I die. Um, I really don't see any kind of um, strong indication that that's what Jesus told, taught us to anticipate. I'd say make the decision. And why would you want to leave the decision? Because that's the thing. I mean, sometimes people talk about Christian faith as if it was um, the price you have to pay in this life to get something really good in the next life. Um in reality, um, uh, Jesus talks about eternal life as something that you can enter into in, in this life now. Um, even on this side of the grave, I'd much rather be living with the kind of meaning and purpose and significance and joy and um, forgiveness and assurance and peace of heart that I have because of Jesus than kind of continue to live without him for 70 years. And then even if I had a chance after death, Take it then. Why would I? Why would I wait? That'd be my practical kind of answer to the question. Thanks, David. Just to follow up um, previously, and for clarity, a couple of people have asked. Um, the Bible teaches about sin being equal in the eyes of the Lord. So their question was just trying to clarify this proportional idea of hell. Are there certain levels and degrees of hell in relation to, for example, of your example of Pol Pot and your auntie? Um, are you able to just clarify that idea and is that a biblical idea? Where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, there's a standard kind of sermon line that preachers often use saying all sin is sin and sometimes the next line we use is and all sin is equal in God's sight. There's a half-truth there, but I want to say it's only a half-truth. The half-truth is that's a very healthy, helpful, necessary correction to our human self-righteous tendency to say, the things that I do are just kind of, you know, little bad habits, character flaws, peccadilloes. Uh, I'm not like 
whatever. Um, so anything in my heart that tries to kind of make me feel good about myself by adverse comparisons with others, it's a kind of arrogant disease that I need to be cured of, I think. Um, so to, to tell myself, you know, well, I know I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, a child molester, I'm not a rapist, I'm not a murderer, so that means I'm okay. Um, I need to be cured of that kind of self-justifying arrogance and, and, and finger-pointing. <laughs> but um, I don't think I can find anywhere in the Bible that says all sins are equal. In fact, the Bible talks about great sins, grave sins, heavy sins, um, you know, particular sins, particular acts of evil as, as, as terribly momentous. You know, for the person who causes one of these little ones to stumble, for that person to be worse than, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus said, you know, the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament says um, they'll be punished according to what their deeds deserve. Uh, as I said before, Jesus in one of the parables says the servant who knew full well what his master wanted and just couldn't care less will be punished with many blows. The servant who didn't have such a clear idea and didn't do it would be punished with few blows. You know, the, the, the more you know, the more you're responsible for. Um, there are particular um, uh, sins that are devastating in their consequences, what, what they, they, they do to others. Um, not, all, not all wrongdoing is, is equal in the havoc that it wreaks in the lives of others. I think we know that experientially, and I don't think the Bible pretends otherwise. So, yeah, I don't want to to, to indulge that sort of self-righteous tendency we have to point the finger at other kinds of sinners and make ourselves feel better. Um, but I don't want to pretend either that um, that God is blind to the distinction between, you know, genocide and um, parking in a no-parking zone. If you know what I mean. Uh, that's really helpful. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, another, hopefully, quick one. Did all the people that God ordered to be killed in the Old Testament go to hell, or what happened to them? Yeah, good question. Don't know. <laughs> um, that is to say, uh, I should have just stuck with the short answer, shouldn't I? But to expand a tiny bit... Um, uh, yeah, the Bible talks about judgments on within history on communities, nations, and so on. And sometimes innocent people can be, you know, caught up in, uh, like, so. So the Bible talks about the the Assyrian invasion of Israel as a manifestation of God's judgment on His people Israel for the arrogance of their rulers, for the kinds of social injustices that they had presided over, that the wealthy in Israel had couldn't care less about. The, they sold the poor for for money. As slaves, for, like for for a new pair of sandals, they they you know sold the poor, um, and God permitted the invasion of the Assyrian armies as a, a judgment on the people of Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, I'm sure the Assyrian army, when they invaded, weren't kind of pausing at every house um, to check on the particular life that had been lived by that family of Israelites, were these good ones or bad ones. Uh, no, it's indiscriminate what the Assyrians did. They were a notoriously um, rapacious kind of army. Um, they were a kind of a blunt instrument of judgment within history. Um, is that saying that each and every Israelite household that came under the, the sword of the Assyrians was going straight? No, no. 
there's a difference, I think, between God's judgments on nations within history and how God deals in justice with individuals at the end of history. Uh, so I would say I don't know, and I was I would assume that there may well be a distinction between the stuff that happened within the history of the pages of the Old Testament and the individual fates of the people caught up in those judgments. That's good. I really like this question. And it talks about heaven and hell, and I realise we've spent the majority of our time, or all our time, talking about, about hell. So I'd like to you to answer it um, in regards to heaven. The question is, what tangible evidence can you provide that proves heaven and hell exists to non-Christians disregarding the Bible as evidence? <laughs> um, none. <laughs> I think that's a short answer. Um, backtracking a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just not. I mean, you see, there, like, I, I, like I alluded to earlier, there was a book that was a kind of a bestseller and the guy did the circuit of the... Um, the TV talk shows, some, some kid who'd had a near-death experience and said he'd had a vision and experience and gone to heaven. I don't know what that kid experienced, what he, his visions were, what, his, um, what, what, he, what he, he saw or experienced in, in that. Um, I think if I remember correctly, and you know, please don't quote me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I think as the story gradually ran, it started to unravel and it became clear that uh, I think his parents ended up differing strongly, you know, w- with each other over what he'd experienced and who'd put pressure on who to say what or whether, you know, those those sort of stories. I think if we're looking for something other than Jesus um, and his his life, death, resurrection, and his testimony as some sort of evidence from elsewhere, I'm not sure what sort of evidence we'd find. You know, we're not going to be able to poke a hole in the sky and see heaven through it, or dig a deep hole in the ground and oh, there's hell. Um, so, as I said in the talk, I'm not sure that heaven and hell are the kind of realities, by definition, that you can find and see and touch and experience within this life, within this creation. Um, uh, I do want to say that there are intuitions um, within our hearts. This is what the, the point that Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, was making. Intuitions within our... We, just like we see in colour, we kind of experience and judge... We can't help ourselves but think in terms of the grammar of right and wrong. Um, we, we have a, a longing for justice. Um, we have a revulsion at wrongdoing and evil. We don't experience life as if materialism, consistent nihilistic materialism, were actually true. Um, so I'd say it's a kind of a, a hunger within us, an intuition that something beyond the, the present physical material world is real. But no, I can't say that I've seen a photograph of heaven or you know, touched a sample brought back from hell. Mm. Um, the evidence, if I'm looking for evidence within history, um, it would be the evidence that primarily is found within the testimony of those who knew Jesus um, in the story of his life and death and resurrection. The, the eyewitness testimony consistently carried to the grave and in, in many cases to the point of execution um, by those who who would swear that they, they knew him, they saw him crucified, they saw the place where he was buried, they met him after he was raised from the dead, they saw the empty tomb. That's the main evidence I'd, I'd stake my decisions on. We've asked you about what hell will be like. Can you tell us what you think heaven will be like? And maybe in that, what excites you about heaven? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for, for uh, letting us talk about heaven a little bit. Um, yeah, firstly, heaven's a shorthand um, for what the Bible talks about in, in a slightly longer phrase as the new heavens and the new earth, um, the new creation. Um, so uh, the Bible doesn't talk about, sorry to spoil this if you're looking forward to it, but doesn't talk about kind of floating on clouds, um, you know, eating cottage cheese and playing harps. Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the uh, oh, cream cheese, isn't it? Cream cheese, whatever it is, Philadelphia state, the stuff. Yeah, it, it, that's not what the Bible promises. Sort of wafting around in bodiless existence in sort of white dressing gowns on clouds. Um, if that was what you're hoping for, then you know, forget about it. Uh, what it does talk about is is this whole aching, groaning world being restored, recreated, uh, set free, as the Bible says, from decay. Uh, from entropy, from unraveling, from pain and death and mourning, um, and remade. Um, so I look forward to what do I look forward to? Uh, yeah, I look forward to all the beauty and the the music and the skies and the water and the just the the restored creation, the the reunion of relationships with people that I've loved. Um, and the Bible says that in some way that we can only just kind of imagine, guess at in this lifetime, the the presence of God. Um, it talks about um, seeing him. Um, not, I think, as some kind of undifferentiated, blinding white light that drowns everything else out, but his glory shining through the whole reconfigured, redeemed, recreated, restored world. Um, yeah, that excites me. Uh, there was some questions similar to hell. What does the Bible paint regarding the new heaven and new earth with reward, um, with um, crowns? I'll let you go further. Yeah, again, Jesus Jesus talks more about, like sometimes as if you know a little bit of history, Protestant Christians uh, ever since the 1500s have been a little un- a little uneasy about language, about reward used in connection of heaven. Rightly uneasy because we don't want to convey any sort of sense that the way to get to heaven is to earn your way there by being good enough for it. Jesus said no one is. So forget about that. But he still talks a lot about the language of, of reward, actually. Great will be your reward in heaven. You know, um, When you drill into the Bible language that's used about reward in heaven um, what you get I think um, is not some kind of um, boy scout badges or merit points kind of system or frequent flyers or something Um, it's not bribes and uh, teachers talk about extrinsic and intrinsic rewards yep Um, extrinsic rewards are you know you do the maths and you get a sticker or something um, or you get a chocolate. <laughs> there's no there's no logical connection between maths and chocolate, um, but an extrinsic reward is kind of like a bribe. Um, you do the maths so you'll get the 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 edible chocolate. Yeah. Intrinsic reward is the thing which actually grows organically out of the thing that you've been doing. Yeah. And when the Bible talks about reward, it's it's very often intrinsic language that it uses. It's like the fruit that grows on a tree. <laughs> Um, Paul, one of the servants of Jesus, one of the apostles in the New Testament, talks about communities of Jesus followers that he had 
suffered for, cared about, um, nurtured, mentored, written letters to, visited, travelled, cared about, you know, kept in contact with. And he says, what is the, 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 the crown, the crown of boasting, the reward, the glory in which I'll rejoice on the last day in the presence of Jesus? Isn't it you guys? So I think he's not imagining um, a bigger house in heaven or something. Uh, what he's imagining, what he's picturing as the reward that he looks forward to, I take it is the faces of these men and women that he loves and cares about, those faces uh, lit up with the reflected light of the face of the Lord Jesus and the presence of God and seeing that the, what, he, what he spent his life on didn't end up being wasted, you know, that there's a fruit there, there's a consequence, it counted for something. Uh, so I think that's when we talk about reward in heaven, um, that's the way to think about it. Um, God seeing to it that the labor, the sacrifice, the secret things that no one ever congratulated you for in this life, the stuff that felt wasted, the things you tried for the sake of justice and integrity and mercy and kindness but it maybe didn't come off, realizing that it actually did count for something and that God established it and gave it a consequence. That's, that's the best kind of intrinsic reward, I think. Really good. Um, final question for the night. You've mentioned the new heavens and the new earth. Can you um, expand on that a little bit? That's a Dorothy Dixon, then, yeah. Um, what does that mean? A Dorothy Dixon? It's the question that like, you would have asked someone to ask you. What a nice question that is, yeah. Can you say a bit more? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. You share out that understanding both in the future but also now okay so um what a dorothy question of you um the the reason why here, here i'll expand this way the reason why the bible speaks about not about leaving this world and going to heaven end of story um or uh is that the bible speaks about god as delighting in this physical creation that he has made. Um, so sometimes Christians have kind of forgotten that and talk about physicality and materiality and this present world as if it was just just a kind of a distraction, an encumbrance. Um, sometimes Christians have fallen into the bad habit, I think, of thinking about death as just kind of being liberated from bodies to go off and be spiritual. Uh, it's a, I think that's a category mistake. It goes back not to Jesus but to Plato actually and to a, a strand of Greek philosophy that got sort of sucked into Christian thought. You go back to the Bible, you go back to Jesus and God um, cares about the, the material world and is, um, he loves it, he delights in it. Go and read Psalm number 104, for example, to get a sense for that. It's kind of like a David Attenborough documentary um, it just kind of describes the water cycle and says, doesn't God love it? <laughs> um, so he loves the world that he's made. And the Bible describes human beings as created bodily by a God who cares about physical, material, bodily, the whole person, not just kind of the intellect or the soul, but the whole person. So the Bible talks about uh, what we look forward to as not souls being set free from bodies, or about leaving a bad material world to go to a good, invisible, spiritual one. Now, the Bible talks about the God who's deeply invested in this material world that is made, fixing it and beautifying it 
and the God who made us bodily, resurrecting us like he resurrected Jesus bodily. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the Bible um, is very positive about bodily existence and the material world and God's investment in that um, ought to be reflected not just in what we hope for in the, pre- in the future but in how we, how we live in the present. Uh, we can kind of an- anticipate some of that and be, um, yeah, co-workers with God in a sense as, as we beautify, as we live in, as we take care of um, the world in the present that God is going to fully restore in the future. Can we give David a, a round of applause? Um, but before you sit down, David, we just want to thank you. Um, thank you for coming out. Thank you. In the, in the space of just over an hour, you have covered a lot. Um, and we really appreciate you coming out and joining us tonight. Um, there are some books. Um, we have a little library over the side. And we've talked about a few books tonight. But The Great Divorce is up there. Um, and also The Reason for God by Tim Keller, which covers some of the stuff that we've talked about tonight. And Tim Keller is a brilliant author and a brilliant thinker who... Um, will answer a lot of our questions. Um, so those books are up there. Um, if there's ways to, to buy them, but I encourage you guys to, to do that if you haven't read them already. Um, David, can I get you to pray for us? And then Andrew, do you want to pray to, to close? Uh, let's, uh, let's speak to God. God, our Father, thank you that you uh, hear us when we speak to you. Uh, thank you that you care about us. Um, mere specks within this vast world that you've made Uh, and yet you make yourself known to us Uh, you see and you value the lives that we live Um, and you promise us that these brief brief lives that we live um, in this age on this earth have consequence um, that stretches forever Uh, so we pray that you'd give us Uh, a wise sense, uh, a wise understanding of the brevity of this life and the weighty consequences that it has in the next. And uh, uh, we do pray that you would make us people who who decide um, in this lifetime um, to to walk in your light, uh, to know you, to live in your sight, uh, to know your son, the Lord Jesus, and be changed by knowing him. Help us to make that decision and to live it, we pray. Amen. And Lord, I just, I ask for each and every person in this room, God, boldly that that you would continue to reveal truth, reveal your light into this dark world um, as you revealed through Jesus, um, through your word. And I just pray an experience of of heaven into each heart and mind and and soul in this room that... um, each person here would taste and see that the Lord is good, um, that his love endures forever, and that, that through your church, your people, through each other, through relationship, that, that um, your heart would be discovered and, and seen and experienced. Uh, I pray that um, over everyone here, um, no matter what each person may be facing, each struggle or each obstacle, uh, I pray that, that the kindness of God would um, fall into um, each person's path. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.